146 BC, General Humayus of Rome led 23,000 infantry and 3,500 cavalry into Greece to subdue Corinth. You can see it right there, right, right to the right of Olympia. After overwhelming the outnumbered forces of the city, he had every male inhabitant killed. He had the women and children sold as slaves. Then, on orders from the Roman Senate, he had the city burned to the ground. This burning of the city was a radical departure from Roman foreign policy. They didn't do that. And some historians believe it has more to do with crushing an economic and trading rival than any real military strategy. And that short history lesson is to make us aware that this very horrible and very real history of Corinth would have been known and appreciated by the people that were now living in the rebuilt city that Paul was writing to. They would have been familiar with the stories and the suffering of the fire that destroyed their beloved city. Paul's use then of fire imagery in this parable of the builders and building, which we're about to get into, is very appropriate. <coughs> very accessible, if you will, to his audience. Paul did not write the way many people use his writings. Paul wrote in context. Context of his audience, in their lives, in their surroundings. He wrote in context of their experiences. He wrote in context of his own theology of the cross, in the context of Jesus Christ and him crucified. But too often his writing is used totally devoid of such context and used to promote all sorts of dubious assertions. And I say this this morning because this parable of the builders and building, which we're going to get into, is one of those bits of Paul's writings that has often been used to suggest all sorts of things that simply cannot be found in the context of this writing. Fee rights. Here is another paragraph that has suffered much in the church from those who would decontextualize it. This is what happens all the time to the Bible. It gets decontextualized. In terms of individualistic popular piety, how I build my own Christian life on Christ, to certain Protestants who have used it as grist for the Calvinistic Arminian debate over the security of the believer, to those in the Roman Catholic tradition who have found a single piece of New Testament evidence for the doctrine of purgatory. Paul addresses none of these issues, even indirectly. His concern is singular, that those currently leading the church take heed, lest their present work will not stand the fiery test to come, 
because they shifted from the imperishable stuff of Jesus Christ to them. This is what Paul is writing about. We have been looking at this for ten weeks now. You can't forget what he's writing about. The imperishable. The heart of the matter. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But before we get into the text itself and the parable, I want to consider this transition Paul uses from the he's coming off the parable of the field, which we looked at last week, and he's going into the parable of the builders and building, and he has this transition. You are God's field, God's building. Seems pretty simple, right? But this is another one of those moments when Paul is saying what Will Campbell said so brilliantly. Remember Will Campbell? We looked at his life story, and he said it brilliantly. We're all bastards, but God loves us anyway. That's what Paul is saying in this beautiful sentence. And Paul's always saying this, actually. If you read Paul closely. You know, Paul is often criticized for being legalistic and arrogant and harsh. But I suggest that's a total misreading of Paul. Here is what Bailey has to say about this transition language. The struggling... Newly born, deeply flawed congregants that Paul was founding were, in his eyes, the restored land and the glorious temple promised by the prophets. Is that beautiful? Oh. And we remember, we're going to get in. See, we're getting close. I mean, it could be out of six months from now. But pretty soon, <laughs> Paul's about to start ripping these people. And you are going to find out there are all sorts of people in the Corinthian congregation. And what does he say to them? You are God's temple. And next week when we get to the end of the parable, we're going to look at the language he uses for that. This is magnificent, this sentence. Furthermore, in this transitional language, you are God's field, God's building, it is important to note that Paul remains committed to his understanding of Christian living. And this is important for those of us who have been brought up in the evangelical tradition in America. This is very important to grasp. And I'm hoping that as we go through this series on Corinthians, in fact, it is going to unlock a door for you. It is going to pop open a very bright light into Paul that maybe has been missing. Christian living, according to Paul, is not lived in a vacuum. Christianity, according to Paul, is not about you getting a gold star from God. It is about what Jesus was always talking about, loving others. Pursuit of personal piety. When separated from community is not what following Jesus Christ is all about. Morals and ethics that at their heart do not have concern for the other have very little, if anything, to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe me, read the gospel. 
Don't listen to what people tell you they say. Read them. And if you think Paul is about pursuit of personal piety, you have been misled tremendously by those who don't know how to read Paul. When Paul's writings are reduced to some instructions on individualistic popular piety, they are being misused. This letter to the Corinthians, which is also written to believers everywhere, remember, is concerned with imitating Christ in the way we live in community. This was the whole problem with the Christians in Corinth. They didn't care about each other. In other words, this whole letter is about the Jesus Creed, love God, love others. Witherington explains this better than I can. Paul is calling the whole Corinthian congregation God's building. building. Collectively, they are God's temple in which God's spirit dwells. Though he is also willing to say that an individual Christian's body is God's temple as well. One of the great challenges to understanding Paul's thought is the relationship between the one and the many. Paul affirms both, holding them in tension. To be a Christian is to be a member of the body of Christ, not an isolated, saved individual. At the same time, Paul holds individuals for their, responsible for their behavior within that community. See, one of the great challenges, I love that one. Paul has been the victim of grotesque reduction in Christianity. He is not easy to read. And because of his complexities, and because of the contradictions that he is constantly giving out, yes, I said that. I said that. Paul's writings are full of contradictions. We will see plenty of them in Corinthians. It creates tension. We don't like tension. We like black and white. So we need our soundbite theologies instead to make us feel better. It's not that simple. Just like a God who dies on the cross for us is not simple. Are we mostly concerned with others? Mostly concerned with loving others? Or are we mostly concerned for ourselves? So Paul begins his parable. And I absolutely love this opening statement. This is so Paul in his absolutely complex test. He calls himself a wise master builder. One of those statements that seems to suggest he is arrogant, but that is missing his complexity. Firstly, he credits it all to grace. Paul is profoundly aware that everything he is, everything he has, and everything he does is because of grace. Profoundly aware. I don't think Paul writes anything or did anything apart from that knowledge. 
Secondly, what imagery was he just using? We looked at it last week. We just read it together this morning. He calls himself a servant. He's very aware that he's a servant. Thirdly, in connection again with that last parable that he's just coming out of, he is very aware that God caused the growth, and so of course he knows God is causing the building. Paul's claim to being a wise master builder has nothing to do with personal enhancement. It is rather modeling for the Corinthian believers, modeling for us, what wisdom and master building of God's house really looks like. Remember, keep it in context. These Corinthians loved what? Self-promotion. They loved style. They loved charisma. They hated Paul and judged Paul because he lacked all of that. And Paul says, well, actually that's because a wise master builder looks like Jesus Christ. He doesn't look like your Corinthian culture. A wise master builder is a servant of all. A wise master builder is an imitator of Christ. Paul is continuing his paradoxical teachings that we have been looking at. Wisdom of man, foolishness of God. Power of man, weakness of God. Wise master builder looks nothing like what the Corinthians thought they should look like. And he uses this paradox to warn the believers in Corinth. But each man must be careful how he builds on. Approaching this thing called Christianity from any other angle than this is a major mistake. It's not Christianity. If it's not about this. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, the believers in Corinth, all of your cherished ways of doing life according to Corinthian culture all of your ways of judging each other and dividing each other and excluding each other, all of your ways of total disregard for each other, your lack of grace, your lack of mercy, your lack of forgiveness for each other, they have no part in the kingdom of God. And to stress <coughs> he reminds them, what is the foundation of of the building, Jesus Christ. Remember, the Corinthians loved their Christian wisdom. We're not talking about a bunch of apostates. Did I say that right? These are not backslidden Christians. Gosh, we love that word. I don't even think that word exists. These people love their Christian wisdom. They're proud of what they know. They love their higher knowledge of Christian truth. They love their gifted Christian teachers. They love their bigger and better spiritual gifts. Those they really loved. And Paul says, 
Well, none of it really matters if it doesn't look like Jesus Christ, guys. None of it. That's what this whole letter is saying. None of it matters. Fee on this. This sentence seems to be sure evidence that he is once again addressing his argument directly toward the Corinthians themselves, who by their pursuit of wisdom, wisdom that does not include a crucified God, are leading the church toward total destruction. Not only must they take care how they build the superstructure, but they are also reminded there cannot be any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. The foundation is not proper doctrine, but the gospel itself, with its basic content of salvation through Jesus Christ. He intends them to hear Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And now we come to the part of the parable that has had so often its own history of unfortunate application and interpretation. This is where that short history lesson I started with is going to come in very handy. When the Romans burned Corinth to the ground, what would have remained? Gold, silver, precious stone. What would have been gone? Wood, hay, straw. You have to understand this. Corinth was known for its precious metal industry. The historian Josephus tells us that one of the gates in Herod's temple, whose doors were 60 feet high, this is a direct quote from Josephus, was of Corinthian brass and greatly excelled those gates that were only covered with silver and gold. Can you imagine? Greatly excelled, only covered in silver. Corinthian brass, that's how amazing the precious metal industry was. So Bailey knows for us. Oh, I didn't even have it. Hold on. I'll, I'll, I'll just repeat it. Paul's images of precious metals and destructive fires would have been particularly powerful to the Corinthians. See? Paul doesn't write in some sort of spiritual vacuum. And Paul shouldn't be read in the confines of our own spiritual vacuums. Like with the building materials. I have heard teaching and read teaching where each material Paul lists is equated with some perceived way of living. Really good. Good, not so good. Uh, sort of bad, bad, horrible. I don't think Paul has any such intent here. Any. He is using an image that resonates with his audience. Just like if your house burned down, this would resonate with you as you sifted through the ashes of all your belongings. You come across maybe the few pieces of jewelry that you had, 
some fresh Estonia. It resonates. important for his audience to hear. So they can hear what he's really trying to get at. Not get bogged down the details that are just details. And what's more, he is skillfully aware that a part of his audience in Corinth are Jews. And so he is drawing on Old Testament imagery used for the temple. Often in the Old Testament, gold, silver, precious stones, you will hear that in reference to God's temple. Which is such important foreshadowing of a most provocative and to some people in Corinth, absolutely blasphemous statement that Paul's about to make about us being the temple of God. And we'll look at that next week. The thrust of Paul's argument and the reason for the different materials listed is simply the contrast that some are perishable and some are not. Next week, we're going to try to come to terms with this whole testing by fire thing that Paul's writing about. But for now, let's end with this current contrast of the building materials. Jesus Christ is the foundation. Right? Therefore, imitating Christ will last. Everything else, everything, no matter how impressive, no matter how good, no matter how Christian, will not. So, we can either build the correct building on the correct foundation, or we can build wrong building on the correct foundation or worse and most dangerous we could even find ourselves changing the foundation altogether Paul has some pretty harsh things to say to people that do that but we have been invited invited to be wise master builders by the God of this universe. Think about that. Why would we settle for that? I know. I know imitating Christ seems contrary to our deepest desires. Believe me, I know. I, I much prefer the way Adele deals with betrayal. Isn't that a beautiful video that the imagery and the, the violence of wanting to just let that person who betrayed her know that he lost and she won. I know that feels at times like the right thing. But it's not. It's not. I know grace mercy and forgiveness seem alien. I know that. Which is why we decontextualize Paul. 
it's easier to just be super holy individuals getting a gold star from God than it is to work in our relationships. Much easier to pursue personal piety than it is to love her. I know. Believe me, I know. But if God loves us, and I'm pretty sure this screams at him. I'm pretty sure that's what that means. His invitation to follow him must be everything we've ever wanted. So let's, let's accept this invitation to be wise master builders. And let's live as loving members of the human family. Imitators of Christ. Servants of all.